by law students for past, present, and future law students bringing you information to help your career this is The Law School Show with Rishi and Chris what up Chris? what's going on my man? how are things? feeling sick, I've been under the weather lately so just trying to recover a bit what about you? rest up, I'm feeling pretty good um Avoiding the bugs so far, which seems to be all over the place. So, fingers crossed. That's awesome, man. So, who do we have in the episode today? Michael Bird. Interesting guy. Yeah, he's been running his own practice for the last 20 years. uh, And he shared a lot of really good insights with us. He doesn't even have a professional website. And has never used one. Yeah, and he is insanely busy without a website. Mostly a real estate practice, right? Yeah, and uh, also does uh, a lot of uh, mental health law. Uh, What did we talk about? We talked about his motivation to leave Bay Street Loring, to move to small town Ontario, and hang up his own shingle. And we uh, talked about some of the challenges he faced while he was starting the practice. Michael also talks about how to find your own personality in law, which I found interesting. So without further ado, uh, here's our interview with Michael Bird. Good afternoon, guys. How's Good afternoon. Doing? How are you? Fantastic. Sitting here on a, a dreary, what is this, Wednesday afternoon in a uh, glass-walled office at the University of Ottawa with uh, Mr. Michael Bird. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. My pleasure. Good to see you guys. Thanks a lot for taking the time. You have uh, been running your practice for the last 20 years, so a lot of our interview will be focused on how do you run your own practice and some challenges you face, the learnings that have come out of it. But before we get into any of that, do you want to just tell us a bit about yourself without speaking about law? (laughs) That's actually not too hard. (laughs) What can I say? I'm a nice kid from a small town. Um, Where are you from? I grew up in Brockville, Ontario, which is about an hour sort of south and and, uh, west of Ottawa. what can I say? I come from a family, I've got two other brothers. Uh, my father was a pediatrician in town for about 40 years. Um, also have a place at uh, Charleston Lake, which you might recall from all my lecturing on waterfront properties. Yeah. Um, funnily enough, I'll even mention that I, I worked for, for a bunch of years at the provincial park out there. Normal kid, liked to downhill ski, involved in martial arts. Um, I suppose up to date, I'm married, I have three beautiful daughters. Congrats. And, uh, you know, life is good. Sweet. All right, so we want to hear, important for the viewers is to get a feel for how people make their decisions in their law career and uh, what their motivations were and how those actually panned out. So unpack the story of your career from the moment that you wrote that LSAT to the moment that we're sitting here today. Okay. I guess the good news is I literally remember the day that I got the letter that said I had early acceptance to Osgoode Hall, Uh, so I was thrilled with that and jumped right on it. Um, I attended uh, Osgoode and, uh, you know, three years later, there I was graduated and um, back in the day they still had the bar admission course. Um, Anyhow, I I entered into my articling position at a firm uh, called Holden Day Wilson, which doesn't uh, really exist anymore. Um, basically, my articling year was uh, very intense. Um, articling can can vary uh, between firms. 
Uh, I started early. I started in litigation. Within a week, I was in motions court, um, as opposed to some firms I'm aware of where you can spend you know three years doing nothing but research. Uh, so it was a very intense um, articling experience. Uh, Holden Day Wilson was sort of a medium-sized firm by Bay Street standards. Had I think about 90 lawyers when I started, um, give or take. Um, and it was a great place. It was a great place and it gave me uh, really solid experience. Uh, there were three rotations in my articling year. There was litigation, uh, real estate and corporate. And I got, as I say, very good experience and very good training. Um, I think part of your question was sort of how did I decide uh, really what area I wanted to go into because I was hired back as an associate in the litigation department. Um, I always had a feeling I enjoyed Toronto, I liked the energy, but I think I always knew that I wanted to make a move uh, into a smaller centre. Was articling your first time living there, full time? Uh, well, law school. Yeah. It occurred to me that if you want to have a career in corporate law, you have to literally live in um, one of the bigger centres, where it matters, Toronto or Vancouver. Uh, corporate, big corporate law doesn't translate very well to a smaller center. Um, advocacy, however, uh, litigation essentially you can take anywhere. Um, and that was the biggest thing, whether I was um, going to head for a job with a smaller firm or open my own practice, uh, advocacy is important because you can do so many things with it. You can be doing superior court trials, you can be playing around in the small claims court. Uh, as we've talked about, you can get into mental uh, excuse me, mental health law advocacy, um, Canada Pension Plan appeals, um, disability appeals, uh, Ontario disability appeals, you can do a range of things as an advocate. Um, and so that was probably the main uh, focus for me and that's why I was so happy to be uh, hired back into the litigation department. What kind of, was there a specific type of litigation you were practicing? At the time it was pretty much uh, mainstream commercial litigation. Um, we acted for uh, a lot of the big banks, um, insurance companies, that sort of thing. And how long did you stay there? Well, the funny thing about Holden Day Wilson is that within the first year of my uh, associateship, uh, the firm literally uh, blew apart. Um, think Heenan Blakey recently, Holden Day Wilson went through that sort of a thing. Um, it had to do with disputes between um, various lawyers. Holden Day Wilson had been a merged firm of two of the oldest firms in Toronto, actually. Um, Holden Murdoch Findlay and Day Wilson Campbell uh, had merged. Um, the firms had very different character, and the merge never quite took. And um, six years to the day after the merge, neither firm existed. So. Um, as it was all unraveling, I said, wow, I better think about uh, my future uh, and where I want to be. And that's when you moved to Ottawa? Uh, really what I did was I, I first decided that I didn't want to stay in Toronto. Um, I did look around Ottawa. Um, I had a situation where I was looking at potentially at a position um, and the firm, in my view, sort of kept putting things off. Uh, I quite frankly at that age became impatient and said, you know what, I could probably run my own firm as well as any of these uh, individuals. Uh, and that was largely the catalyst where I just said, I've had it with 
big firms. I was tired of the politics of Toronto. I was tired of being put on hold uh, in Ottawa. And I said, I bet you I could do this as well as any of these guys. So I ended up, uh, for business reasons, quite frankly, uh, locating my practice in Brockville uh, because it made sense to me from a business perspective. Um, I had been you know, well regarded as a nice kid who was smart and everything else. Um, I was uh, well connected with a variety of people. My father was still practicing uh, medicine. Um, and so it just made sense as a location for me to set up my own practice. Nice. One particularly funny story is I had actually um, done an interview in Toronto with a lawyer I probably don't need to name uh, who had a practice in Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories and he had told me that um, I was sort of his second choice um, and I said okay fine I, I won't go on the adventure of the Northwest Territories. After the mail found its way from Toronto to me in Brockville, realized it was from this lawyer who said the other lawyer had declined and he wanted me to practice in Northwest Territories in Yellowknife. And I had to say, like, sorry, it's a little bit late because I had already sort of been established for, I don't know, whatever, six months. But uh, it's funny how your life can, can yeah. just miss certain opportunities and that you end up sometimes where you end up. Yeah, it's, it's one thing I've learned, especially over the past summer, was uh, how the market is a strong force in dictating where your career is going to go, um, or at least it's, it's one factor that certainly um, yeah, influences it. What, what type of law did you start uh, practicing when you opened your own practice? Um, basically litigation, um, okay. because that's what I had been really intently uh, trained in and had a certain skill for and a certain passion for. Yeah. Um, but if you go into a small town market, you, you do realize as you go along that you need to be more of a generalist than a specialist. Um, and again, I think, you know, we can talk about that a little bit, that you need to mold your practice for the market that you're sitting in. Because I do know of individual lawyers who've tried very hard to specialize in a way that didn't fit the market they were literally in and they went bankrupt. Yeah. Like what were some of the challenges when you actually started off your practice that you faced? Um, yeah. Go from day one, like this yeah. is a... <laughs> well, there's always, there's always a learning curve. I mean, the first, thing, uh, the first thing that I did do, which I would recommend because I think they still have the program, is through the Law Society, I went to a seminar on how to run your own practice. Um, and as I say, I think they still have it. And it, it was helpful to a degree. I mean, they talked about file management and mm -hmm. tickler systems and all that sort of mundane stuff. Um, funnily enough, it, in my situation, I had sort of a, finding space, first off, is the big thing. Mm -hmm. um, and because money is always a factor when you're, you know, young, um, getting a space to basically set up your, your shop um, was the first concern. Funnily enough, when I had done that, I had some other lawyer who had heard I was coming to town who said, oh, why don't you come over with us? Um, but of course it was on a you know no fee kind of basis and they just wanted to fill an office. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that young lawyers wanting to start their own practice need to really be aware um, that older lawyers, if I may, may want them, and it sounds like they're an asset, but what they're really doing is 
filling an office to their advantage mm -hmm. um, and really not offering very much. Um, and that sounds a bit cynical, but I, I saw it up close. Um, in any event, I, I ended up going with the first situation that I had. Um, it was a big, big building, uh, belonged to a lawyer who I had known for years um, through my family. Um, and there I was, sitting in an office, looking out on Courthouse Square, saying, <laughs> look at me. I'm a, I'm a sole practitioner now. <laughs> but the, the concerns become, again, mundane. Um, you know, I bought a, a <laughs> I bought a computer for my brother for 500 bucks because I needed a computer. Yeah. You know, I, I remember having a Radio Shack $99 computer desk. I mean, <laughs> some stuff is just so mundane. Yeah. I started off with a little two-drawer filing cabinet. You know, now I have... God knows, you know, 4,000 closed files that I have to store places. Yeah. Um, you can start off very humbly, and then the idea is, is you know, do you advertise? Do you not advertise? Do people come to you uh, because they know you've set up a practice? Um, having sort of mentoring lawyers um, pass files along to you, either out of kindness or because they don't have time for them, um, is another thing. Um, and like feet on the ground, you, you need to get seen and you need to, to get what you can get because really you're not mm -hmm. in a position where you can necessarily say no to stuff. It's, it sounds like your reputation preceded you a little bit before getting there, which was a positive. Yes. How did you get your first client? Uh, my first client, that's funny that you would ask that, was a referral from a Bay Street firm <laughs> that everybody would recognize because he knew me through somebody else or I had been involved with him very briefly and he had a matter that required something done in Brockville and he phoned me and I did what they needed to do and I felt very, you know, here I am in little small town Brockville and I'm helping out with some Bay Street stuff and uh, that was kind of neat. Next couple of files came from the lawyer uh, in whose uh, building I was, uh, which is always a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, and what, what's good to do is, if you can, pal around with some fellow lawyers and find out sort of what kind of work they're doing. Um, we talked about the fact that I do a fair bit of mental health law. I remember going to the first hearing I ever saw, um, there's a there's a big psychiatric hospital in Brockville. Uh, it's part of the Royal Ottawa uh, mm -hmm. Health Group. Um, I remember going to a hearing with a, another lawyer um, and seeing how that uh, worked, and then somehow I started to get some of that kind of work. Um, uh, and, and that work is useful. I mean, it's funded by the legal aid plan. You're guaranteed to get paid, which is not always the case uh, with some <laughs> private clients, unless you're just really hard about retainers. Yeah. Um, but that's how important did you think were having those mentor lawyers initially when you started up and do you still have that network at this point? I, I do. It is very important because again, in the same way that you, you kind of mold your practice to the kind of market you're in, um, it's helpful to have a lawyer who's practiced there for a while describe it to you and mm -hmm. let you know um, what's available, what you should be doing, what you might not want to be doing. Um, you know, there's something, I think even in Ottawa, you know, you, you have legal aid duty counsel. You know, you, you get paid a certain amount per hour by the legal aid to essentially be the free lawyer um, yeah. at the court. Uh, when you're just starting out, that's an important source of income. 
and that gets you out and being seen as a lawyer um, and it's very useful it's, it's very useful you can't be afraid to do a variety of things um, because you don't want to just get yourself too specific right away because you got to survive economically you have to do what you have to do in the beginning and, and get yourself out there and get that reputation established. And I'd love to hear about some of the challenges you faced in the beginning. Was there ever a time when you were sitting there being like, this is crazy, this is just not yeah. going to work? Um, or I should go back to private practice. The, the learning curve is always a, a challenge, right? All the stuff we're talking about mentoring and all these various things that you need to do, it's all new. I mean, I came from this fairly rarefied, you know, medium-sized Bay Street firm environment. Um, I'd never even heard of legal aid when I was in Toronto. Um, I wasn't aware of any of these sort of um, panels that you could be part of. I wasn't aware of any of the mental health law stuff. I wasn't aware that there were appeal panels for disability clients, mm -hmm. um, all that kind of stuff. Wouldn't have known what a duty council was to save my life. And, and for a while, you can do things that you never even thought of. I, I did the criminal court duty counsel for years. Um, but if you've never even been around criminal law, you need to learn how it's done. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of sort of shadowing and, and, and that kind of thing. I mean, if you have lots of money, you don't have to do any of this, I guess. But, <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're fairly young and you don't, um, it's, it's both good economically and to get yourself out there to be seen. Yeah. So well, you're an entrepreneur, essentially. Yeah. yeah. You've got to be dynamic. You've got to get yourself out there, as I have said a couple of times. Um, and you've got you've to shine. You've got you've to show people that they should be confident in you mm -hmm. um, on whatever level that is, whether as an advocate or on an interpersonal level. Um, whatever, but you've got to use all your skills and your gifts to to establish that you are someone who should be trusted as a lawyer and who people would want to utilize. And at what point, so you started off in litigation, at what point did you decide to expand it into real estate and wills and estates and some of these other practice areas? Um, again, out of necessity, um, you may have someone who says, oh, I hear you're, you're practicing law now. Um, I've got a house deal. Is that something you can handle? Mm -hmm. um, and keep in mind, I mean, I had a full articling rotation in real estate, so it's not like it was unknown to me. Um, again, I just had to understand how things worked on the local level. I mean, you, you need to know who your registrar, deputy registrar is, the registry office. You have to make sure that you either understand how to search a title or you need to know who to farm that out to, um, to do it. Um, it's kind of a big deal. I remember my first year, I probably did five real estate transactions. Oh, well. Which is, you know, different than doing whatever, three or four hundred a year. Yeah. It's, uh, and then I guess slowly, it, it, uh, over time, it just became a broader part of your practice? Yeah, absolutely. I remember, uh, yeah, I had a year where I, well, I suppose numbers don't matter, but it, it increased substantially because my reputation somehow got established. And sometimes with real estate, you can become the darling um, of real estate brokers and agents, and then you just find your income skyrockets uh, and the amount of work that you're doing is is just crazy in that area um, so that was that sort of a thing again same with wills um, people say well I hear you're practicing law can you draft my will and you might say I've never drafted a will in my life and again that's where mentoring comes in if you can call a lawyer and say listen I've got so-and-so so or maybe even a family member uh, who needs a will drafted 
any help you can give me. And there's always a, a wealth of precedent materials that lawyers have. And if they care about helping you develop your practice, they will pass them on to you. Mm -hmm. And again, learning curve. You have to, having materials isn't enough. You've got to read them through, understand them, and make sure that what you're doing is, is valid and on point. Who is your first hire? In terms of... Of your own practice. Or have you always just done it by yourself? I've always done it by myself. Uh, I have seen law firms blow apart. I have seen partnerships blow apart, even in a small place like Brockville. Uh, quite frankly, I've never known anybody who I would trust enough to share what I've established with. And that may sound terribly cynical, um, but you know, I have a buddy who is also a colleague and he's great. I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust him with my practice. And that's, and that's tough because um, when you are sort of running things yourself, um, you don't have anybody to sort of pass things on to necessarily, mm -hmm. unless you have extremely capable staff, but even that has its limits. Um, what, were, what were some of the mistakes that you found you made early on that you can share with some of the listeners? Um, making sure you know what you're talking about is huge. Uh, there was one that stuck out in my head. I had, um, I had somebody who needed, there was a title problem with a property and the person who should have it didn't have it for whatever the reason was. And I remember reading up on vesting orders and I was sort of like, okay, I get this. I understand this and I'll make an application to the court for a vesting order and that'll fix this title issue. And it was just not on point. It, the, the judge looked at me and said, what do you want me to do? Like, this is out of my, I literally don't have the power to give you what it is you've asked for. And I remember just thinking, I missed this one. <laughs> and it does happen. You know, you can sit there in all your glory and your black robes and your white tabs. And if you're just wrong, it, it doesn't get much worse than that as a practicing lawyer. Yeah, good learning. Good yeah, no learning. kidding. It's like I either won't ever touch that again or I'll make sure I get it sort of more on point next time. Yeah. Best and worst thing about your practice? Uh, best thing is the absolute independence. Mm -hmm. I am absolutely my own boss. Um, the way things have turned out, um, I have a great office. <laughs> nothing but windows overlooking the St. Lawrence River. It's just absolutely Fantastic. glorious. Um, not that I'm all pumped up on that, but it's it's a pretty nice setting. It's so a it makes a big difference. It's a really nice setting. Spending a lot of time. Better than a cubicle in some big building with, you know, no windows. <laughs> For sure. You know, yeah. The, the worst thing sometimes is the level of responsibility. Um, you know, you... You don't just have a job, you're carrying it in your head all the time. Um, at that seminar I mentioned on running your own practice, you know, lawyers who, who started their own practice say, you know, for the first five years, you know, like I'd wake up at two o'clock in the morning because I'm like, oh, geez, I got to get that file and I didn't do this or I didn't do that. Um, you hit your stride after a while, but um, the level of, of responsibility is a big, big thing. Um, as well, because if you're running a sole practice, you're responsible for all the administration. Mm -hmm. You're responsible for all the law society filings that need to be done. Uh, you're responsible for payroll for your staff. And, and as much of this as you can farm out to some sort of office manager, 
um, is great, except that most sole practitioners aren't really in that position. And you don't really want to be paying somebody to do stuff that's not that hard, and you're pretty sure you'll find the time at some point. Right. But you can find yourself in a position where sort of 50% of what you're doing is administration, because you are running a business. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, if you're only sort of practicing 50% of the time, that, that can seem a little lacking. How many hours do you actually see, find yourself practicing on a weekly basis? I used to do anywhere from 12 to 16 hour days uh, in the beginning because you just want so much for it to succeed. Yeah. That's your total focus. Um, you know, it, once you get established, it sort of becomes an eight to 10 hour sort of a situation. On the other hand, you can also just blow off an afternoon if it looks really nice out. Yeah. <laughs> as long as you have people that can cover off what's going on. So again, it's, it's that sort of, dare I say, bipolar situation where you're either working harder than you may have at a Bay Street firm or you're working sort of not at all and enjoying life. Mm -hmm. How does the compensation compare to the, the mid-sized Bay, uh, Bay Street firm? Um, to tell you the truth, for the first while, if it goes well, um, you would be exceeding your Bay Street compatriots. And I know that because uh, one of my best buddies still practices in Toronto for an insurance defense firm. Um, and I was making more than he was for a good, I don't know, five, eight years, something like that. Uh, it does plateau at a certain point because when you run a sole practice, you are sort of a limited product, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, and Bay Street compensation you know, eventually exceeds, um, but not really by much. <laughs> it's it's a good deal if it works well. It's a, a good deal, and if you keep working hard, I mean, I know I know sole practitioners who it, it never really took all that much. But yeah. they weren't. I'm a bit of a type A, type triple A, um, <laughs> and so uh, that was my situation. Um, but you have, you have to work at it. You have to work at the reputational stuff. Um, you know, you need to be involved in the community as well, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, you know, you find yourself, you know, chairing boards. Everybody knows you're this young lawyer and you've got this reputation and everything else. So you end up doing a lot of um, sort of things outside your practice, which again then serve to bring more work into your practice. Um, and I know a lot of people who don't, they go to the office for seven hours and they go home. Yeah. Um, and, you know, their reputation is meh and their money is meh. And, you know, yeah. you, can, you can do it one way or the other. So given the number of hours that you actually put in, whether it's in your practice and you also teach at University of Ottawa, mm. what does work-life balance mean to you? Work-life balance... Um, it was funny, my, my deceased mother had a phrase when I was much younger, because when she was growing up, everybody said, just be happy. And she said, you know what, Michael, do the hard work first, then be happy. <laughs> so I think, I think work-life balance to me means you can decide what it is that you sort of want to do, work hard enough that that becomes the possibility. Um, I mean, that's sort of the harsh way of looking at it. But if you, you know, if you work and you make money because you want to travel, there's good work-life balance. Um, it also means, and I've, I've done all kinds of stuff sort of alongside practicing. I, I taught martial arts for a number of years. Um, I, I've done a variety of other things. Um, you, you can have a life even while you're working hard. Um, 
it really depends on your personal preference, mm -hmm. on, on whether you sort of want to bang it out so you can do what you want without working a whole lot, or whether you want to sort of keep it all moderate as you go along. Yeah, personal preferences, which is kind of one of the beauties, it sounds like, of having your, your own practice is that you get to make that choice. You don't have somebody telling you how it's going to be. Yeah. Uh, you make the decisions as to how it's going to be. So generally speaking, what's one difficulty that being a sole practitioner presents for your life outside of work? Uh, probably stress control. Uh, this idea that you, know, you carry it around in your head all the time, um, sometimes it seems like you, you can't really just relax. Um, and if you have a significant other, um, sometimes that can get on their nerves. Yeah. You know, it's like, seriously? Hi, I'm yeah. here. And you think, oh, sorry, I was just, you know. Or if you do hop out of bed because you're going to miss a limitation period and you just realized it and you have to get something filed. <laughs> oh, you know, that can be a little bit irritating. Yeah, of course. What do, you, what do you actually do to keep that out of your head and when you're with your family, having that family time when you're at work, having that work done, is there certain tactics that have worked for you? Um, I mean, for me, Personally, again, I've got a, got a long background in martial arts and meditation and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's all good because it's physical and this idea, you know, just, just breathe, you know, find ways to just settle it down um, mm -hmm. are very effective in my case. Um, you know, I know people that um, they do dance classes or they're involved in activities like that where it kind of bleeds off that stress energy so that even if the thoughts occur to you about your practice it doesn't stress you so it's like any other sort of advice that you'd get on managing stress do something physical make sure you breathe try to understand that you're not the be-all and the end-all that mm -hmm. the world is not gonna stop spinning because you're not thinking about your practice 24 hours a day um, yeah Lawyers, especially sole practitioners, need to understand that they're not the last word in, in, in lawyers that people want or need. Um, mm -hmm. I always found that odd because you take it on as such a personal thing and you'll, you'll find a lawyer who's 20 years ahead of you saying, you know, sometimes the clients don't really care. You know, <laughs> if you just let them in all the time, they start to devalue you in a certain way. So, interesting. What, uh, what's contributed most to your success? Did I mention I'm type AAA? Yeah. Um, <laughs> probably really working hard to establish the practice, um, then making sure um, that you continue in a very steady fashion. Um, you know, don't go Charlie Sheen on anything because that can blow you out of the water in terms of your reputation. Um, being involved in community is huge. Um, sitting on boards of directors, charitable organizations, uh, that sort of stuff. It's, it's huge because um, both reputationally and in terms of personal interaction and giving back just makes you a kind of a better person, makes you a more interesting person, which then contributes to your success. And as well, taking time for yourself outside of your practice so that you're not just totally stressed, as we say, there, there is some time for just the things you personally enjoy. So I think it's sort of a, a three-legged stool. Um, yeah. Work hard, community involvement, personal time. So having all of this experience now, if you were to go back to the days when you were in law school at Osgoode Hall, mm -hmm. what are some things that you think you did well that have helped you where you are, and what are some things that you think you could have done differently while you were in law school? Um, 
Law school was interesting, uh, as you guys would know, there is such a variety of um, people, such a variety of viewpoints, um, variety of cultures, variety of, of active voices for certain causes. Um, I think I, I tended to be a bit of an observer um, when you take in the absolute diversity of people, it kind of makes you a wiser lawyer uh, when you're doing all the things that we've talked about. Um, mm -hmm. You're not just focused on, on what you believe necessarily. Um, you're, you're sort of open to wider viewpoints and different sorts of people. Um, and again, it just sort of makes you a better person. Um, so that, that was something that was helpful for me. I, I wasn't terribly active in various uh, school activities. Um, I sort of had other things that, uh, that I was involved in. I was training the martial arts uh, with another lawyer um, who, who was at Osgood as well. Um, you know, you get busy, personal relationships are different. Um, I, you know, I, I wasn't all that involved. My, frankly, I was losing my mother at that point. Um, so I was a little bit back and forth from Toronto. Um, so, you know, I don't know whether that would have assisted me uh, in any way or not. I think some of the resumes that, that uh, law school students have now would, would look like a, a laundry list of all the stuff they're involved in, uh, sort of very functional and very rah-rah. Um, that just wasn't my, my thing at the time. Good. Maybe it should have been a little bit more, I'm not sure. What's, as we sit here today in your practice, what's one thing that you feel like you could, you could improve? My practice? Um, or about, about your skill set in law? Okay, that's better. I was going to say, the Law Society's not going to hear this. <laughs> yeah. right? Office organization, you know, uh, money management. Um, you know, some lawyers are just super hard-nosed about getting a retainer on every file. I have tended toward... You know, I will help you, I'll bill you later, don't worry about it, because again, you're trying to grow your practice. Um, and if you're doing well enough, you can, you can afford to do that, mm -hmm. but then you sometimes find that the money management skills have gone out the window, you find that you're doing too much work, um, and either not getting paid, or it, you're just, it, the volume is too much, which then raises the stress level. Um, you have to really be careful uh, if you if you become well regarded, uh, you know, a gazillion people may want you and you've got to be able to sort of manage the work, manage the money uh, and do it so that you're, you're actually getting paid and you're actually enjoying the work and you're able to give it sort of your full focus. Um, sometimes it can get to be too much and it's sort of like, not me of course, uh, but other sole practitioners, you know, forgetting to call clients and not following up. Uh, and if you look at, at statistics that the Law Society keeps, you know, these are the sources of complaints. And the last thing you want is a, is a Law Society complaint because you're sort of too busy. You're, you're, you're not able to get to everybody or get mm -hmm. to everything. Mm -hmm. um, it's a significant, uh, significant problem because, again, you, you want to get a big volume of work so that you can make money and be successful and happy, but it can, it can get to be a little overwhelming sometimes. Yeah, that, that sweet spot sounds like a little bit of an elusive thing. And it's, it's, a, it's so interesting seeing the juxtaposition between working at a, a larger firm where it's kind of top-down and things are basically dictated to you. And regardless of your personality, you gotta, you got to do it. Whereas in the sole practitioner side, 
you've got to be really in touch with who you are as a person because you're making all the calls, you're driving that ship, and you, you've got to marry those two things in order to be successful and be happy, ultimately. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. So if you weren't a lawyer, what would you be doing right now? Well, funnily enough, I mentioned that I used to work at a provincial park for the Ministry yeah. of Natural Resources. <laughs> I always said if I had my choice, I'd be a forest ranger. <laughs> Except that forest cool. rangers were making like twenty six grand a year, and I knew that wasn't going to cut it for what I wanted to do in my life. Yeah. So you don't make a whole lot sort of walking around flagging trails. But, yeah, but, but the freedom is great because because I, I sort of was a forest ranger for a while, and it was it yeah. was a very happy time, very peaceful. I believe well, it. To wrap it up, do you have any uh, last couple of advice points for uh, students in law school at this point of time, uh, based on um, your experience? In terms of, of maybe what you want to do, look at what you enjoy now. Um, look at the passions that you have, um, or in general, the things that you enjoy doing, because surprisingly, there may well be an area of law where you can combine the two. Mm -hmm. I know a, uh, uh, again, a, a lawyer, colleague, and friend of mine um, who was a hockey fanatic. I mean, this guy kept stats, he knew the whole nine yards and he became a very successful litigator but then when he started to transition into sports and entertainment law it was like nirvana <laughs> he, he's the happiest guy going um, he was able to combine sort of the passion that he had for sport and his uh, law practice um, and he's a happy camper fantastic any last points ah that was awesome well, yeah. <laughs> Anything I can do to help. Well, thanks a lot for taking this time. We really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you. This is the Law School Show.